This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hello, everybody. I'm Mai Nguyen, director of the Design Lab. And joining me today is Henry Brady, a director of research at California 100. I know the students are used to seeing Karthik here. So this is uh, his counterpart here. Uh, Karthik is in Washington, D.C. again, so he couldn't, he couldn't make it here today. Um, Henry is the former dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Um, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors because this is our last design at large and our sponsors have been so wonderful in supporting um, this, this effort. So the Qualcomm Institute, the San Diego Supercomputer Center, and the Burnham Center for Community Advancement. And the Burnham Center um, is very much interested in this topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is the future of work and higher education. In fact, they're working on this issue in the community, and so this is a special topic for them to support. Today we have a very special design at large because not only do we are we hosting this in one location, but actually three locations. So welcome to those who are on Zoom and YouTube virtually. And then um, also those in the Design and Innovation Building here, our brand-new state-of-the-art building uh, on UCSD's La Jolla campus. And then also we have an audience at Park and Market um, downtown in downtown San Diego. So, um, yes, there's our Park and Market audience there. So, hi, Mary. Mary Walshock is Associate Vice Chancellor for Public Programs is, and is going to be our host for downtown and Mary, tell us the significance of connecting UC San Diego to, to the downtown community and how this building, the building that you're in and our building um, here uh, on campus, will modernize our educational delivery. No, very, very quickly to those of you on the UCSD campus, we have almost 30 people here at Market Market, an equivalent number. Some of them are UCSD students who paired the trolley ride. We even have a couple of professors in the audience who have other business downtown. And it speaks why this is an important adjunct to the research, teaching, and public service role of UC San Diego. Because where we're located is on the trolley line, close to city government, close to the military, close to first-generation communities, all of which are important to the research and teaching mission of the university. So we have faculty drop-in offices, classrooms, conference and meeting rooms. We have a cinema, theater, uh, performing arts theater, and even a cafe. So we are so excited about the way in which Park and Market will integrate with the life of UC San Diego in all its dimensions. And today, colleagues, this is our first attempt at web streaming with our new Qualcomm screen. So be patient, but also be excited. Because once we get this right, we will be sending lots of good programming to the campus, and the campus will be sending lots of good programming downtown. So thanks, Mike, for the experiment today. Thanks, Mary, for taking me up on the experiment. So, Henry, I'm going to turn to you um, to tell us um, how California is preparing young people for the changing economy. Great. It's wonderful to be here. 
uh, and hello to downtown. That's tremendous to have that linkage uh, and to be doing that. Also, I'm just struck with how much uh, construction is going on here at UC San Diego, which has just been an extraordinary institution over its life. Um, I want to talk about what we're doing with Cal 100. Cal 100 is trying to think about the future in a design sort of way. That's why it's really great uh, to be partnering with the Design Lab here at UC San Diego. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, Cal 100 is uh, started out by taking 13 different areas and doing reports on those. We've released those reports in groups of three or four. Uh, we're about to have our final release June 1st of all the ones having to do with fiscal policy and governance. Uh, but we just had recently our release of reports on arts, culture, and entertainment, uh, the future of the workforce, and the future of education. And those three go together. Today we're going to focus on just two of them. That's, that's really plenty. And let me give you a little bit of the background that comes out of our reports in thinking about the future of those areas. I think you've got to start with this, that California has a real inequality problem. Uh, we have had a hollowing out of the middle class in the state of California. Uh, California was built on the middle class and on the aerospace jobs uh, that were created in the 40s and 50s here in California. Uh, those jobs are disappearing as we get a de-skilling of the workforce and lots of low-wage jobs and then a, a, a tremendous skilling of the, report of the workforce with respect to high-wage jobs, but not much in the middle. And that's a real issue for the future of California and, frankly, for the future of America. Uh, and this is, of course, an area in which when you have that kind of hollowing out, uh, that's a problem for marginalized communities, which have always been uh, behind everybody else and not given the chances they should have been given. And now they're given even fewer chances for the future. Um, with the growth of low and high wage jobs, we've got to think of ways to solve problems of creating new jobs that will be better jobs. Uh, it's not clear that AI is going to solve the problem. It may make things worse. Uh, that started out by causing lots of repetitive jobs to be replaced by artificial intelligence. And now it's actually taking jobs that require more skill and finding ways to replace people in doing those kinds of things. Um, and so the, that is a real question for California and for the nation as what the future of work will look like. And then you add into that mixture Zoom and the possibility of doing ro work remotely. What's interesting about that is that really helps the high end, doesn't much help the low end in terms of skill uh, wages and skills. Um, service jobs still pretty much have to show up. Uh, the person who cleans the building has to show up. The person who delivers the groceries has to show up. Um, and therefore, Zoom is a great benefit to one group, but the group that's already advantaged, not the disadvantaged group. How will higher education respond to that? And that's what we want to talk about today. Um, will it just go a traditional way and keep doing what it's doing? There's a lot to be said for that. In-person education, as we've all learned, I was the dean of the Goldman School for 12 years. The last two years was, were awful when we had to do it via Zoom. We lost so much. The networks, the social networks that are created on a campus are part of why people come to a campus, so that they can get to know their fellow students, uh, faculty members, and staff. Uh, those were all broken. Uh, with COVID and led to all sorts of difficulties and problems. So there's a lot to be said for traditional education. But we still have a situation where we could maybe think about new models. Uh, for example, unbundling. Uh, maybe we're going to have smaller degrees. And in fact, all the way to perhaps the fact that you could take a course almost anywhere and get credit for that almost anywhere. 
And how will that look as we try to replace the current situation where you have to enroll at a university and be registered, and then you can get courses? And indeed, places like Berkeley often don't count courses that you take elsewhere. Uh, this would be a radically different model where those courses would count and would help you towards degrees. Uh, so unbundling is one thing. Another thing is what's the role of the private sector in all of this? The private sector is increasingly, Google and other companies are providing training for people. Is the private sector going to become more and more involved in training, and where does that leave universities? And does that mean maybe that the unbundling model has a lot to be said for it because universities could partner with those private corporations and, and provide ways for people to take some courses at Google but some courses at the University of California, Berkeley, or San Diego? Um, and then I think the final question is, is what's education going to look like in the future? Is it going to continue to be a public good? The trend has been, uh, certainly in higher education, is to privatize it. More and more people have to pay a large fraction of their tuition to universities. It used to be that you could do it essentially for free in the state of California. Can't do that anymore at either the CSUs uh, or the University of California. Uh, are we going to go more and more in that direction with privatization, which probably increase income inequality? Or are we going to go in another direction where we're going to recognize it as a public good? And how are we going to match the notion that it's a public good with all the other changes that I've just described? That's a real challenge. And that's what our panel is going to talk about. Thank you, Henry. Um, you know, I remember being able to work and then write a check for my tuition when I went to college, and I don't think that you can do that now, right? <clears throat> so I have the pleasure of asking the first question to the panelists, so let's welcome our panelists here. So, E.V.C. Simmons, I'm going to start with, with you. Um, Elizabeth Simmons is the Executive Vice Chancellor at UC San Diego. She's the Chief Academic Officer and is responsible for policies and decisions relating to all academic programs. So students in, in the room, you should thank her for creating this wonderful academic environment for us all to learn and grow. Um, she is also an extraordinarily accomplished scholar. She is a theoretical physicist. And also, I know from personal experience, a fierce advocate for equity in the academy. Um, Elizabeth, in this country, we rely on institutions of higher education, mostly public institutions, such as the UC system, to educate students and provide the research to meet the 20th first century economy. And that it increasingly involves learning and innovation. What are the innovations and challenges for higher education in California? Can you speak to that? And also, what innovative programs or practices at UC San Diego are you excited about in terms of preparing students for the future workforce? You know, California has a really long history of um, being at the forefront of social and technological change and advancement. But if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that history can be very quickly disrupted and upended. And so we can't count on California automatically being at the forefront. We have to work at it now. And uh, our capacity to continue to lead will depend on our ability to adapt. Now, I think one of the things that um, uh, my distinguished colleague just pointed out is um, the problems of having um, 
having is higher education going to continue to be a public good as opposed to something each individual has to figure out for themselves? And um, in addition, just the question of we've relied on higher education as a path for social mobility. That's been something that we've come to think of as a given. But when we look at the educational disparities that people face coming into college, let alone going through college, we realize that it's not a given that higher education is going to lead to social mobility if you can't get in the door in the first place, or if you're not set up to graduate successfully without some huge amount of debt, for example. And so we really have to think again, and we have to design a better way forward. So what we're doing at UC San Diego is using an approach called collective impact to try to erase the opportunity gaps that are separating students of different demographic groups from one another in the opportunities that they have to succeed educationally. And collective impact means taking a structured approach to collaboration where you pull together common data sets, common methods, common goals, and figure out how to bring a lot of separate efforts that perhaps were each impacting a small group of people in different parts of the university and get them all to pull together so that together we can erase the opportunity gaps for all of our students, all of our staff, all of our faculty, and help everybody succeed. And as the executive vice chancellor, it's my aspiration that we use this collective impact approach to become a truly inclusive, student-centered, research-focused, service-oriented university. And that means that we need to scale up the size and the interdisciplinarity of our research collaborations and make sure that all of our students have a chance to participate in research and internships to prepare them for what the workforce is going to be. We have to be as proud of intellectual, um, of, of uh, educational innovation as we have been of our scholarship. And we have to make sure that this impacts absolutely everyone on campus and not leaving anybody out. And so a few of the key ways that we're doing this is to be unified in how we make sure that every student has access to high-impact practices like summer bridge programs or access to being part of undergraduate research. We are unifying our approach to pipeline development and workforce preparation through a, lot of prepar through a lot of programs that our division of extended studies, including all the work at Park and Market uh, that's being done now, our work of um, enrollment management, our work with our um, uh, center, uh, our CREATE Center for Educational Equity, to make sure that we're really paying attention to who's coming to the university and how and a big thing that we're doing right now is really investing in the design lab, because the design lab is a source of a lot of innovative thinking and innovative practices that invite all students to come here to participate in design thinking, to experience it hands-on in the maker lab spaces and in the basement spaces as well. And we're investing um, up to a dozen new faculty hires to be made with the design lab across all of the areas of the university so we can collectively embrace design as a principle of the university to help us do better. So that's just sort of a hint of where we're going.
Thank you. Music to my ears, investment in the design lab. <laughs> Lenny, I'm going to turn to you next. Lenny Mendonca was the chief economic and business advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom and the chair of the California High Speed Rail Authority. He is a senior partner emeritus of McKinsey and & Company and a lecturer on inequality at Stanford Business School. Lenny, you know, I'm a product of the California school system. I grew up here in the 1970s. Um, and the school systems here were among the best in the country. And then we had Proposition 13 come. And students in this class now, we've talked about Prop 13 in that it reduces our ability to raise revenue through property taxes, right, which affects schools. So we have this reduction in school investment, um, and this impacts the ability for social mobility through education, through quality education. What are we doing in California to address this? Because we have less revenue, less investment in schools, and we're trying to bridge the education gap. So um, first of all, I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of anybody else with prior employers or otherwise. So these are my personal opinions. Uh, Prop 13 was passed the year that I was a senior in high school. And I was one of the editors of the yearbook, and I pulled my yearbook out recently, and all of the yearbook was about how Prop 13 was going to destroy public education. And I think it was largely correct. Um, California has found a way to overcome the aggregate level of revenues from, from taxes through higher personal income taxes. And so what's happened is and we just... Governor put out a budget proposal with nearly a hundred billion dollar surplus. That's all driven by high income earners, particularly capital gains taxes. So California has higher on marginal personal and income taxes, but lower property taxes than most other states, including places like Texas. So part of the challenge is if you're going to not be as dependent on high income earners, which creates volatility, there are ways to work around that like reserves and uh, using those surpluses for one-time or infrastructure investments rather than building them to the ongoing budget, which is most of what the last two governors have done. But there's also a challenge of how do you find the right revenue stream that's more stable and that property taxes can do. Um, I think that's a very good discussion that ought to be and will be on the agenda going forward. I think uh, to be more... Um, controversial about it. In my view, not only did Prop 13 create those challenges for the budget, which have been partly overcome by other me mechanisms, but it's really created second and third order effects that are even more consequential than that. Prop 13 has effectively been a transfer of wealth to wealthier, older homeowners, many of whom are white, away from renters and lower income earners, most of whom in the state of California since then have been people of color. I, my daughter bought a house less than a mile from me 10 years after I bought mine. Her house is half as big as mine, and I pay less property tax than she does because of Prop 13. That's not fair. That means she has to pay more every month for her house than I do just because of the protections that come in Prop 13. But in addition, it has severed the link between local economic development and investment in public schools. It's moved that all up to the state level that again gets reallocated through complex formulas. 
And so we really need to think not just about the aggregate revenue levers, but what it's done to other incentives to ensure that we are investing in our K-12 education. And it's not just K-12 education. That volatility creates big challenges for public higher education. Public higher education excluding community colleges, which are protected under Prop 98, are one of the last uh, pieces of the budget that don't have their own protection to the volatility. So whenever there's a big downturn, higher ed takes a hit, and they never build back up to what it was before. Now, the, and we happen to be in the part of an economic cycle, particularly the financial market cycle, at least until earlier this year, that the revenues are good. And so there is a lot of money coming into post-secondary education, including the, the UC system and CSU system, but it's still only making up from what it wasn't before. And it is much more aggressively tied to an expectation of outcomes, which I think is totally appropriate. The governor's compact has a set of objectives that will have a multi-year commitment to resources so that the university and the CSU system can plan for that, but it has some commitments for enrollment growth, for graduation levels, for closing the achievement gap, which are all the things that we want our public university system to be doing to continue its enormous part of a success in the state of California. So I think um, Prop 13 is um, among the um, most consequential elements of California that's making economic mobility hard not just because of the volatility, not just because of the disconnect and the less funding for public education, but also because Prop 13 has helped create an environment where it's disadvantaging younger, less affluent people, and it's regressive and uh, uh, giving the resources to those who already have it. So if we're going to do something about all of those things, we need to do something about Prop 13. And the last thing I'll say is that one of the most challenging elements to ongoing economic success in the state of California and business growth, particularly in the kind of uh, middle jobs that uh, Henry was talking about, are that we're not building enough housing. Housing costs too much because there's more demand than there is supply. We have to build more housing if we want to lower the cost of living in the state of California. Prop 13 and other things that came on that makes it really a dis incentive for local municipalities to do housing development. So all you put that all together, and yes, Prop 13 is a huge problem. Um, it's going to be really hard to overcome, and it may not come in one bite, but it is something that we actually have to tackle. I know this is probably longer question than we have time for, but I'm curious later on, you can tell me whether or not there's a chance to eliminate Prop 13, if that's ever going to happen. But I'm going to turn to Zach Pardos, who's an associate professor of education at UC Berkeley, and he studies adaptive learning and AI. And his research focuses on knowledge representation and recommender system approaches to increasing upward mobility in post-secondary education. He's worked a lot with K-12 educators and students, working to integrate educational technology into curriculum as a formative assessment tool. So, Zach, California's at the forefront of technological innovations, right, with automation, artificial intelligence, robotics. And this is going to radically transform our labor market. How are educators preparing our students for the skills necessary for the future work? Thanks for that question um, and for hosting us here. Uh, so what are these educational technologies? What are their relevance to the future of work and to the future of higher ed? 
Um, so in, as part of this report that we put together uh, for this California 100 project, we chronicled some of these technologies. And some of the trending technologies have a common principle to them. They're called adaptive learning technologies or computer adaptive tutoring. Uh, and the main principle behind this is that the system constantly assesses students and then it draws from a pool of digital educational resources to tailor um, an educational resource to the level of understanding a student is at. And so they're thought to be relatively efficient for upskilling or use for programs like Summer Bridge at Berkeley where we can uh, admit more students um, than we would have otherwise, students who perhaps aren't up to college-level math, but through the application of this tool, they can get up to college-level math in a summer. Now, these technologies aren't good for everything. They're mainly used in STEM. Uh, also, they're, they haven't been shown to be good for learning 21st century skills or facilitating social networks, substantive interactions needed for that. But where they are applied, uh, significant learning gains have been found. So what's the relevance of these kinds of systems to the future of work? Well, the more technology displaces jobs, and it is starting with jobs that don't require a college degree, transportation, food industry, but it is already and will increasingly apply to jobs that do, um, these kind of technologies are being explored and applied to help uh, learners, people from industry, pivot, right? Upskill in another industry that's not taken over by um, AI. So in higher education, we're also seeing some of the ingress of private industry. For example, Udacity offers, uh, Udacity is a California-based uh, company that offers micro degrees and uses some of this adaptive learning technology. So one of the questions when we think about the future of education and higher education is as all of these people are looking for upskilling, they're looking to pivot, are they going to look to public education to get that re-education, or are they going to look to private industry to get these efficient upskilling experiences that tailor to their background knowledge and make efficient use of educational resources? In our report, we detail both futures, one in which it becomes a 100% private industry enterprise, uh, and the other in which public institutions like the UC system and California Community College and CSU system are able to leverage technology um, in order to retain their value. And the two things I want to leave you with or to put out there that public education has as values over private industry, one is content. We have so much content. We have the faculty, we have courses, more than 100,000 courses across the system. That's a lot of content. And private industry struggles to have this content. That's why they partner with uh, institutions like 2U partners with schools to offer masters online using the pedagogy and course material of the institution. So what do we need to do in order to be competitive with industry? We need to better use the resources at our disposal like that adaptive learning scenario. Or this is one way forward, right? How to make efficient use of our educational resources, many of which are now offered online as options because of the pandemic. Some faculty will continue to offer them online. So if you're a student in the system, how do we allow you to take any course across the whole system? 100,000 course catalog. Can you imagine that? That'd be great. Uh, the system already allows massive cross-registration, but what it's missing is students take courses that satisfy a requirement. You know, we'd love it if there was the capacity to take a course for fun, and certainly you can, but 
people have a limited amount of financial aid, so they have to prioritize uh, satisfying requirements. But it's a very laborious task to map different courses to requirements of different degree programs. So we can use technology to do that kind of mapping and thus open up the whole catalog um, for students to take courses and then potentially adapt those courses to them. The other advantage that the system has over industry is data. Uh, Gavin Newsom's been talking about uh, building a uh, cradle-to-career data system. So if public education is able to utilize that to do something like I described adaptive learning, what that does, but do it in higher education, that is understand the background of a learner so it can tailor um, uh, future degrees, future courses, maybe even future certificates, um, uh, then public education uh, will have... Uh, a lasting impact and will be a competitive option versus uh, industry. Imagine taking a class anywhere in the UC system, right? That's really transcending space. Peter, I'm going to turn to you. Peter is the CEO of San Diego Workforce Partnership. He has he and his team have transformed SDWP and really reimagined workforce development delivery. Um, they manage a countywide network of full-service career centers with an emphasis on underserved populations. Peter, given that you run a countywide network of career centers, what can you tell us about some key workforce trends? And if you had some advice for college students, theoretically, what, what, would, you, what would you say to them if they're graduating this year in terms of being prepared for the workforce? Well, first of all, a, a big shout out to Mary Walshock and the Park and Market team. Uh, we're housed down there as uh, uh, an adjunct to what we do, and, and Mary's vision is really cool. If you haven't been down there, it's a beautiful building, mixed use space where nonprofits are there, so we can collaborate and and tad with the BCCA. So, uh, great partners. Future of work uh, in in our world of workforce development. Just to give a little bit of context, um, the federal government funds um, public workforce development. So there's uh, what's called the Workforce Board, which we are. There's 570 of them around the country. We get Department of Labor money based upon formulas and needs, and then we deploy that through the Career Center Network where people come to us who primarily have been dislocated, laid off, uh, and during the pandemic it was through the roof, of course. And then we're also supporting employers, so we get what's called the WARN Notice, uh, Worker Reduction Notice, and we got um, a flood of them. Thankfully, things are coming back, but during that traumatic time, people are coming to us, but they can't come to our physical location, so we had to pivot to online, and we continue to do a hybrid, uh, and that's um, important. But I really feel at, at the essence that workforce development and supporting people is really a human-based activity. Technology can make it better, and it's a great partner to it, but we can't escape the one-to-one the -one, uh, uh, human encounter that helps people learn those 21st century skills and really navigate the world. Uh, advice for college graduates, I don't know if I'm in the best place to do it because my focus is really around the people who are really left behind right now. The there's a real inequity in our world that we see every day, and the inequity and inequality exacerbated during during COVID. My focus is on um, people who are in these low-wage uh, positions and wanting to move uh, up in their career. If you're working in that low-wage job and you don't have 
the requisite skills that an employer is looking for in a brand new field, how do you get them? That's a huge barrier. How do you do that? How do you do that affordably? How do you do that while you're working full time and raising a family and just trying to navigate? So it's our job to figure that out, to make it accessible, affordable, if not free, so people can get short-term rapid training so that they can get the foot in the door to um, move on in their career. So that's where our focus is. We uh, reach um, in the neighborhood of 70,000 people in our, in our region annually who are coming to us, again, either laid off or in transition or working and really desiring that next step, but they need the support. Higher ed is not for many that we serve, but we've also created an innovative initiative in the past three years with Mary and Extension, where we created the uh, still the first and only workforce-related income share agreement initiative in the country. I'm really proud of it because what that is in a nutshell is instead of that student loan that you take on and pay off when you get that great job, all the risk is on the student. In an income share agreement, we raised philanthropic dollars in partnership with Mary, pay the way for students to go through extension, 9 to 12 months, get that skill. They then pay back to the fund a portion of future income for a limited period of time when they make an income threshold and then it's a pay it forward model and it's working and it's uh that's another way that we try to approach this to support people where they are so that they can get into the education the, that they need in order to make that that progress in their community but I'll, and lastly again where my focus and our team's focus is is about people who are being left behind and there's thousands and millions around the country we have this crisis in our country uh, called opportunity youth or disconnected youth opportunity is a better term than you're disconnected it's opportunity in order to reach kids but these are 16 to 24 year olds many of that age in this room but 16 to 24 year olds who are not working and not in school before the pandemic that number was uh, north of five million in our in our country that's just tragic. And if they don't have the opportunity to be in the workforce, to develop the skills, to advance in their career, the, the bad outcomes are highly likely. And we have to get ahead of that. And that means reengaging them through the K-12 through system in innovative ways, which is another big area of focus for us. And then we have to close that gap because uh, in our region, that number we measure uh, every year, um, more than measure, we, it starts with data and then you can act on it, but that number is at least 40,000 in our region, not working, not in school. Imagine Petco Park full of kids in that range uh, who don't have the next step in their career figured out and have barriers from the opportunity gap. But it's also an awareness gap that even becomes before that because they weren't provided with the opportunity to even know what's out there because of their zip code uh, and the neighborhood in which they're born and they don't have the opportunity to, to navigate out of it. So that's where our thinking is and our, our focus. But I'm optimistic, even um, given some of that, because if we do the right interventions, intentionally reach out to people who are not provided the same good luck, um, fortune of being born in a great home or a zip code, they deserve our support in order to help them uh, achieve their potential. Well, great. Uh, thanks for some wonderful uh, laying out some of the issues here. Peter, I'm going to just come to you real quickly and ask for a quick answer on this, which is, how, are the community colleges, the CSUs, and the UCs helping enough to solve the problem that you're working on? I know more in the community college space because we do partner with them in extension. When we do a real 
meaningful collaborative thing instead of just talk about it, then yes. There's too much talk and we're all about action. So like with Mary's support, we created an income share agreement that is now helping people go from less than making less than $20 an hour or unemployed to an average wage of over $60,000 and some making six figures with quick, affordable training. Uh, so it can be done. But I, I'm a big fan of the CSUs and, and the whole UC system, and uh, we try to partner in any way we can that's really meaningful. Great. Thank you. Lenny, let me go to you. I, you've thought a lot uh, and been involved, in fact, in thinking about funding for higher education in California. What is your assessment of how well the community colleges, the, the CSUs, and the UCs are doing in meeting their obligations to educate the people in California? Well, first of all, I think we need to start with a factual statement that we have the premier public post-secondary education system in the world. There's nothing that's even close, and that's at all levels. The research universities have have created the technology and the intellectual property and the capabilities in, in individuals that have funded California's innovation success. And the CSU is the largest public system of four-year degrees in the country, and the community college system is the largest uh, two-year degree system. So they're terrific assets for the state. Um, the things that the governor has proposed in the budget are part of what they need to improve on. We need to be much more inclusive and in creating all kinds of openness and continue to make available seats for the population that is eligible for them. It's just a horrible thing to have someone go through the K-12 system, meet all the requirements, and then not, not able to get into post-secondary education. So they need to meet those. They need to be much better. This is less true of the UC system. It's more true of CSU and the community college at getting people to and through and a degree in a reasonable amount of time. The worst possible outcome is if you start a post-secondary degree, take out a bunch of college debt and don't get the degree, you're actually worse off economically if you had not started at all. That will help with the first one because the more people get through faster, the more spots that open up. And then finally, and this just isn't an issue with uh, the education system, it's an issue with employers, we need to get better at ensuring that the skills that we are providing people are matched with what employers are looking for. And that's as much on employers as it is on on the education system. They need to be specific about what they are. They need to be tangible about what they are, and they need to hire based on those skills rather than on resumes and proxies for those skills. So I think we're, let me say, good and the possibility of great, and there's no better uh, economic mobility lever in the country than K-12, to and I'm sorry, than the post-secondary education system in the state. So, Zach, let me let me ask you now. A lot of this seems to me like a matching problem. We've got us and a guidance problem. We've got to help students figure out how to make their way through these systems. It used to be, for example, the community colleges had remedial courses you could take before you could actually start degree programs. They've gotten rid of that to a large extent, recognizing that that wasn't really a good idea. People should start by taking the actual courses that will fulfill the requirements and then have help in doing that so they get better at it. So when you say there's 100,000 courses, part of me goes, oh, my God gosh, isn't that going to overwhelm a lot of students? Isn't that going to make it impossible for them to find their way through this system? Can the technologies actually help to solve that problem, or are they going to make them worse? Uh, so they'll, they'll start by making them worse, by <laughs> having more options to choose from, uh, but then uh, they can quickly make them better. So um, you know, navigating a Netflix catalog is pretty daunting if you had no recommender system, right? If things weren't organized and so forth. So um, what, what initial technologies can do that solve the mapping problem is 
map courses to common requirements or common course numbers. Other states actually have done this. Um, uh, but then the second is using technology to help guide students through this increased, increasingly large landscape of courses, right? And uh, it, advisors are effective. Uh, research has shown if you have a 1 to 30 or so student-to-advisor ratio, graduation rates increase substantially. Um, but uh, we would be somewhere in the $5 billion or $9 billion a year range if the whole um, California post-secondary system had that kind of uh, student-to-advisor ratio. It's more like 1,000 to 1. Um, so there are things that advisors do on a, a personal level that uh, information systems can't replace. But following rules, like degree requirements, are something that a computer can do fairly well. Uh, and understanding equivalencies between courses. So absolutely, there needs to be a kind of concierge of sorts, right? a virtual concierge that can guide students through um, those paths. Great, thank you. So final question from me is Elizabeth Simmons. One of the glories of the UC system is we take in uh, transfers from community colleges, and often I, I find those are our best students. They're really exciting people who have lived lives and really done things already and are really hungry for education. But are we doing enough for them? Is there more we can do to make the uh, roads to UC easier to traverse and to get to UC and to really succeed at UC? So I would say that I completely agree with you that one of the best things that the UC does is have a third of the incoming class each year be transfers from community college, that we're required to do that, and it's a good thing, because you're right, it brings in tremendous students. So. Um, if you look at the uh, rate at which um, students who come in as um, first-year students graduate in four years versus the rate at which uh, students who come in as community college transfers graduate in two, you'll see we're generally doing better at getting people out in four than at getting the transfer students out in two. That isn't true everywhere. In our Division of Biological Sciences, it's actually reversed. Um, and that tells us where we need to fix things in the lower division courses. But there are two things that I think that we can be doing to do better by our transfer students. One is to build very intentional partnerships with the community colleges so that we learn about students who are potentially interested in coming to the UC and make sure that they get the actual guidance on how to prepare for the majors that they are interested in. So they don't just have to look at some catalog without any guidance, but they actually get some interaction from us and from our faculty and from our enrollment management folks. So we kind of roll out the red carpet and say, we're interested in you. We want you to know what you have to do to prepare for, say, these majors you're interested in. The other is that um, we need to make sure that when they get here, they find that the coursework that they're expected to do in that two years could actually be physically done by a human being. And there, that's another place where technology can really help, where um, we're, for example, um, part of now a, um, a, um, a collaboration um, with uh, Arizona and with Georgia Tech looking at curricular analytics where you map out all the courses that are required for a particular degree, whether you're starting at the first year level, at the transfer level, and look at 
if I'm going to take this course, what were the prerequisites, and what is this a course a prerequisite for, and how does the entire set of courses I need to take, how do they interact with one another? So if I got sick in winter quarter of this particular year, what is that going to do to my whole degree plan? And we can flip that on its head and say, what should it look like? Should it look like a tangle of spaghetti, or should it look like something that a human could understand, a human could do, even if life happens to them? And that's a big place where the technology helping us visualize can help us see where we can fix the curricula so they facilitate the success, particularly for the transfer students who only have two years. Great. Thank you. Mary, um, over at Park and Market, I'm going to turn to you a little bit in just a minute to get some questions from the audience there. But I wanted to open it up to the panelists to see and start with Elizabeth to see if you have any reflections on what's been said today. Youth being, you know, the executive vice chancellor of this university, you think about all of these things that have been said, right? The students that are the young people that are left out of our education system that aren't in college, the funding, you know, during boom and bust periods, you know, when we have money, it's great. But when, you know, we're in a recession and they come higher education funding, how does that affect us? And then the, how we use technology to actually create more inclusive uh, opportunities for students. So I'm wondering if you, if you have some reflections on what's been talked about today. Yes, I think that one of the really interesting things about the governor's proposed budget, and then as it came forward again in the May revise, is that, um, and I'm going to be reflecting on what all my colleagues have said, is that it promises additional recurring funding, not just one time to maybe build something, but recurring funding that will support the university and students over time if we meet certain goals around access for more students, but having those students succeed, having them actually graduate and leave with, leave with a degree. And I think that's exactly the right path, provided that the state is willing to follow through over time. Because if they're willing to follow through over time, we are definitely willing to follow through, and we will invest in, for example, the technology that lets us use things like a virtual advising center and chatbots to take care of some of the really routine questions so you save those human advisors for the really, for the really difficult things. It lets us plan to have our Division of Extended Studies work on, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the income sharing agreement um, and uh, other partnerships like that so that we make sure that we're bringing people into education situations who didn't think they could get there. But the stability of funding underpins all of that. If we have that, then we can really fulfill the mission that we have as a public institution to be inclusive and to make sure that we are reflecting in our student body and our faculty and our staff the true population of California and have everybody think, I could go to the UC or start at a community college if that's what you want to do, and then come to the UC. Um, but it really, it starts from having the stable funding with the requirements. We should have requirements. We shouldn't get to do just whatever we want. We should be expected to make progress on inclusion. We should be expected to be smart about how we use technology to do that. We should be smart about how we work with industry partners and make firm partnerships with industry to help have them help us understand what are the skills, what are the modern skills that a biotech firm wants from, a, from our biological sciences graduates. How could then biotech help us make sure that we are 
that we have the core facilities on campus where students learn to use the cutting edge technologies in either research or applied settings so that then when they go into the workforce, they're prepared for what industry actually needs. There's a tremendous potential, and it all starts with the reliability of the funding. Lenny, I hear you shaking your head. Do you have a response or reflection? Um, I have a quick response on that comment, and then I have a different comment I want to make. And then we'll we'll turn. Can we stream uh, with Park and Market right now so we can get ready for the questions there? Uh, my quick response is I 100% agree, which is why this is a compact where there's agreement on both sides that for these outcomes, this com- this resource will be committed for that length of time. And I think it's up to all of us who have, who have interact with our legislators to reinforce how important that is, because um, this isn't something that the governor can do unilaterally. It's got to get approved to the legislature. So I do think it's important. Can I leave you with one optimistic note on um, the a- potential application of technology and particularly around applying it? With with looking for the outcomes you want in the beginning, more of a design approach. So more than 25 years ago, the 11 Western governors at the time got together and concluded that they did not have a system that met the needs of those who had some degree, some college but no degree and wanted to go back to school and get something that could help with their career. So they designed a new institution, a nonprofit university that now is the largest largest university in the country 125,000 students that gets people through a degree program to get them degrees in in in-demand jobs in healthcare, IT, business, and teaching. It's actually the largest producer of K-12 teachers in the country. It costs less than $7,000 a year. It's all online. It's competency-based. And the average person who goes there pays back their entire cost of their education and an increase in their income within 18 months. And that was all a design choice that a set of forward-looking leaders said, we have to find a way to do something about this problem. They designed it in the early days of the Internet. Originally, it was floppy disks sent out. And then they built on the technology over time, and they use the leading edge of all the technologies that you were describing in terms of course design, understanding how students learn, adapting the curriculum to them, et cetera. It's called Western Governors University. It has an, an enormous potential to be an, not just an alone, but an example of what's possible what we think boldly and bravely about what we're trying to do. And if we design it. So thanks for that. Mary, do we have any questions at Park and Market? Hi. Uh, this is for the gentleman in the blue. Like, this where I believe your name's Lenny, right? Yes. Um, in regards to your, your statement on how California's funding for public schools has gone dramatically down since the... Um, 1970 So to overturn them, you're going to have to go back to the ballot and amend them or come up with some alternative. The legislature can't do it. So that requires something that is both popular and that there's the resource to make it happen. And there will be much opposition to making it happen. So it it will be a simple simple majority, but it is going to require 
tens of millions of dollars to get it on the ballot and potentially be passed. So I don't have a very quick, this is a simple solution for it. It's something that's going to take likely a combination of a set of players who have real resources and are prepared to put that to, to that measure. It's going to take some real creativity about how that's done so that it meets the needs of what you're trying to do without create other second-order problems. And third, it's just going to have to probably be tried a couple times and have the timing right. So um, I don't, I'm not hoping for any near-term resolution to that, but I think it's something that really need to, particularly with an uh, effort like the California 100 that's looking at this over the long term, you really need to take a hard look at that funding system. Well, and just to note that Prop 15, which tried to go to a partial reform, which is the split role, which would involve us uh, taxing commercial real estate differently than residential real estate, that failed at the polls about two years ago. And many people thought that it was the time when it finally would pass. So even a relatively modest approach, which would have actually made corporations stop playing shell games, is what they do, uh, is they, maybe, they never allow their commercial real estate to turn over, so they keep paying very, very low taxes. And it used to be that a pretty high fraction of property taxes came from commercial real estate, and that's gone way down, and it's now mostly residential real estate. We'll take one from this room right here. Thank you for sharing all the information and knowledge today. Um, I'll preface my question with a little bit of an example. I work with communities in the city who used to have middle-class jobs, who used to have living wage good income jobs, but don't anymore. Like Those same jobs have gone way down and have become low income jobs. So with that, I wanted to ask, like, what is the limitation of like, upskilling, and how do we move past those limitations? I feel like that's a question for Peter. Yeah, happy to take that. Well, we need political will. Uh, Build Back Better got wiped out. That would have seeded uh, $100 billion in workforce development that would have allowed for massive investment in our region. Um, when you have nothing, it really makes it difficult. Fortunately, we have support from our governor with uh, High Road Training Partnerships and the city and the county, private sector and philanthropy. So we're doing all we can to build resources to do upskilling every day. That's uh, our entire focus because... People are in different stages of their career, and you need accessible, free, or low-cost training to move in your career because you can't just go to Qualcomm and get your foot in the door. If you have some training, you can get your foot in the door, and then off you go. But it's that short-term, critical-focused training that makes all the difference. And again, the model like we do with extension is one avenue, but there's many others that we are taking part in from the public dollar to just other creative endeavors to really target that. And, and half the challenge is just reaching people because they don't know where to turn in order to do that outside of their very busy life and, and even to understand what it is is out there that aligns with their, their interests. Well, thanks, everybody. We're having trouble with sound here, aren't we? Uh, some of the glitches have to get fixed. Um, but this has been a wonderful panel, tremendously interesting insights. Um, let me just say that California 100 is trying to get people think 
more about the future, a design activity. And I guess the biggest message I would want you all to go away with is this. Do we want a California where we have tremendous disparities in income between rich and poor? Uh, do we want to have a California where education is public or private? Uh, do we want to have a California with lots of technology helping us to solve problems? Um, do we want to have a California in, in a world in which Zoom replaces in-person kinds of interactions? Uh, I'm not sure I know the answers to all those questions. Uh, and this panel has shown you how complex they are. But it's something we need to be thinking about. We have to think about the big issues. How can we deal with disparities of income? How can we make higher education better articulated with the needs of the state? Those are the kinds of things we have to go away, think about, and we have to get our political leaders to think about those things too. It's too easy to do fire drills, especially these days when we have wildfires in California on a regular basis. We've got to get beyond fire drills uh, and just dealing with the fire of the moment and deal with the really long-term problems that California faces. That's what California 100 is trying to do. It's trying to lay out a set of issues that we as a public have to think about and have to make decisions about and have to push our political leaders to think about, to think about the future. Unfortunately, political incentives are often very short-term because you're only governor or member of the assembly or whatever for a short number of years. We've got to get people to have longer time horizons and to think about the future. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. And I want a special thank you to Karthik Ramakrishnan, who's not here, but he's been sitting in this chair for the last five sessions. Uh, and Karthik and I got together to come up with this idea that we would collaborate on thinking about the future of California for the next 100 years. And I think that we've had such wonderful conversations. And this group of panelists is just one example of the six sessions that we've had. So to the students in here, this is the last session. I'm so grateful that you joined us on this journey uh, this quarter. And um, we hope that you take some of these ideas you accelerate change, and you, you are the future. You are California 100, right? When we think about the future, we think about you and what you'll take from this class, what you'll take from these conversations, and then apply them to actually creating a better and brighter future for you and for future generations. So there's so many people that have made this possible, and I can't list them all, but I do want to thank my wonderful staff of the Design Lab who, I mean, have just poured their hearts into making this quarter a success. So to Kevin, Shayla, Renee, Olga, and uh, my TA, Hoisin, thank you for making this happen. And thank you, everybody. The panelists will stick around for a few more minutes, and you're welcome to come and talk to them and to ask them any questions that you weren't able to uh, during this short one hour. So thank you, everybody, for being here. And thank you to our panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.